Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today we welcome the most influential man in the history of software sales, John McMahon. The founder of Medic, John has used his playbook to mentor over 150 CROs. He's an investor and board level advisor at some of the hottest technology companies in the world. This is his playbook. In this special edition series, the 33 CXOs, we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic, which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Today, we welcome software sales royalty, the legend, John McMahon. John, welcome. Good to meet you, Simon. Good to meet you, Ali. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie Kune. John, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the show, and thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. And um, yeah, our listeners, you're in for a right treat today. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for having me. So, so, John, I want to start off by just reflecting on the story, right? So the 33 CXOs, all of these guys obviously worked with you at Blade Logic. I suppose what our listeners and our viewers perhaps don't appreciate is that your sales organization was, you know, barely over 100 uh, sales reps at the time. And I just want to read out some of the names, okay? And I'm just going to ask you to reflect. So. Cedric Pesh, CRO, MongoDB, Dan Fugere, CRO, Datadog, Adam Ahrens, Carlos Del Torre, Brian Blonde, Patrick Ball, the list goes on. What do these names mean to you? Um, they're, they're great guys that I was lucky enough to recruit and help train, but you know they're, they're all really intelligent people. They were very coachable. They're highly driven. You know They want to be somebody and they took a lot of coaching pretty well sometimes, sometimes they didn't, but uh, in the end it's worked out for them and I'm really proud of them. So these guys have gone on to achieve incredible things, right? They've started to build legacies of their own. We're going to talk a lot more about your playbook and about the things that you did with them and, and your recruitment, etc. But actually, I think one of the things I wanted to reflect on is that this doesn't really do justice to the full extent of your legacy because we are just talking about a very small group. If you look at those you've influenced from PTC and BMC and all the board advisory positions that you've carried out over the years, there's a lot more to your legacy. How many people do you think you've kind of influenced into these senior leadership positions? Well, yeah, I don't know. Somebody once counted like close to 150, but I don't know that it's just the people that have made it to the CRO level. I think there's a lot of people that I've helped or tried to help because, you know, I have a saying, you know, if you want to get what you want, you have to help enough other people get what they want. So it's more than just the 
people that you know rose to the CRO level. It's lots of other people that I think have helped, I've helped. And, and, and when you sit there and you reflect on your legacy, what what, what how do you reflect on your legacy? I don't ever really think about my legacy, but if I had to, I'd say it's all the people that, you know, have gone on to do really well, right? I was the leader at the time. I think leadership, sometimes people think leadership is about, well, I was a great leader and I left the company and then the company folded. So that was a sign that I was the great leader. And I don't think that's right. I think great leadership is your ability to recruit great people, train great people, develop them, coach them, and help them take your place so that when you do leave as a leader, you know, they can step up and take your place. And that's what's happened with a lot of guys. And I think that's a legacy. Was it always your intention? You know, if, if, if you were kind of to reflect on the kind of person that you are, is that very much your nature to kind of nurture those around you and see success? Is that, was that always kind of the plan or is that just how you're built or is that just how things have panned out? I think you get smart as time goes on. You know? <laughs> I think if you take first, most people when they're first promoted from sales rep to sales leader, a lot of them think, okay, I'm super salesperson. That's why I got promoted. And they think more that the job is more about themselves than it is about their people. Uh, but anybody that knows it, you know, that's had kids understands that it's not about them. It's about you know, when the kids wake up, when they go to bed, what, when they go to school, what activities they have, your life changes and it circles around the development of the kids. And that's really what happens when you become a manager. So a lot of times when reps would call me and say, hey, I want to be a manager, I'd say, do you have any kids? They say, yeah, I got two. And I go, well, why do you want five more? <laughs> yeah, what I was trying to do is get them to realize, look, it's not about you anymore as a sales rep, because as a sales rep, you got up when you wanted to get up, went to bed when you wanted to go to bed. It's all about your accounts, your customers, you, 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 you. And now your world's changed. It's not about you anymore. You got to take your ego off and unscrew it off and leave it on the dresser at home. Your success is going to be tied to and I guess, Simon, your legacy is going to be tied to how well you develop those people and whether or not you develop them enough to be able to take your place. 100%. And I think for me, and I think definitely for the listeners, I think we want to go all the way back to the very beginning and start this, you know, this particular podcast with understanding you know, how you got into software sales and where it all began for you. So maybe you can give us a bit of an insight into, into that yeah. question. Well, I came from a poor family, I grew up in New York and New Jersey. And then um, my dad, like, never even went to junior high school, but he wound up being an electrician at Otis Elevator. And, um, you know, I decided I was going to go to college, I had to put myself uh, through college. I was packing trucks at United Parcel Service in Secaucus, New Jersey, five o'clock to 10 o'clock every night. Then decided my dad didn't know and I didn't know. So I said, oh, I'll be an electrical engineer. So I went to New Jersey Institute of Technology, got an electrical engineering degree. But uh, in my senior year, I was the president of this group called the IEEE, the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. And I ran like an industry night where I had a panel discussion. And I had, then I had after the panel discussion with different people from different disciplines of electrical engineering, I had these round tables set up where the students could go, you know, mingle with some of the participants from the panel. 
when I got done running the logistics, the only table that was left was sales. And there was only, there was a sales guy sitting there and no one else was sitting with them. <laughs> so I sat down with them and I never thought about myself as a salesperson because you typically would think of a salesperson as some fast talking person that's going to sell you, you know, aluminum siding or a used car or something. And then I had a really good conversation with the person and I felt like, hey, you know, the guy's not a nerd. Like he's social. He could talk to him. I can have a conversation with him. And it's unlike a lot of the other students that I went to school with and unlike, you know, the other people that were presenting on the panel. So I went home and I told my dad, hey, you know, you know, I met this sales guy, told him about the experience. And he said, look, I don't know a lot, but I know that some salespeople can make a lot of money in this world. And that was it. Done going into sales. So then I went to work at a company, well, to Hewlett Packard. Okay. At that time, HP was selling electronic test instruments to electrical and electronic engineers. So it was a good fit to learn about the uh, instruments. At that time, some of the instruments were $100,000. So it wasn't really a sophisticated sale, but it was a good way to get into sales. And then I, you know, I learned a lot from there. So that's how I got into sales. And so you've, that, that's hardware sales. What was your first software sales role? Yeah. So then uh, HP decided they were going to get in the electrical CAD business. And I had been doing really well selling these electronic test instruments. And they took over a company called Seracore. And um, this guy named Mike Reed was the VP of sales. Came up to my desk one day and he said, hey, I hear that you're a really good sales guy. And I go, well, no, I'm Okay. And he said, you know, I'd like you to join my team. And I said, well, why would I join your team? And he goes, because everybody on my team makes over $100,000. Mm-hmm. I remember this is a while ago, right? I'm not going to age myself, but that was a while ago. So that was it. I said, okay, that's it. I'm going to go sell, you know, CAD software. Then I sold a big deal to General Dynamics at that time. I, I don't know, it was 10 or 12 million, something like that. Probably more like a $20 million deal now got promoted to be a manager. And then I would, you know, just go out on sales calls with reps from selling CAD, electrical CAD and mechanical CAD from San Diego to Santa Barbara. I lived in uh, Southern California at the time. A question we, we had, you know, were you a good salesperson? Were you a better manager? Yeah, that's a good question. So as a salesperson, I was really persistent because I didn't think I was the best presenter. I didn't think I was the smartest person. I wasn't the most technical person. So I had to be the most, I had to you know, find some characteristic that would help me and that would be being the most persistent person. As an example, I'd, I'd get up early and if I wanted to get a hold of like a VP of engineering, sometimes they'd even have in the parking lots at that time on the bumpers where you pull your car in, it would say, you know, VP of engineering. So I just stand there six o'clock in the morning and wait for the VP of engineering to pull up. And, you know, maybe I get 30 seconds with them. Maybe I get a minute. Maybe sometimes they say, come on in and have a cup of coffee because, you know, their secretary's not in and talk to them for a while. So, you know, I did different, let's call them tricks and techniques like that to separate myself from the rest of the people that might be more apt to be able to sweet talk their way through the, through the VP of engineering or somebody else's secretary. Leadership, I think I might have been a better leader because all I really cared about was going out on sales calls with my salespeople. So when I first got the sales leadership job at HP, to give you an idea, 
I was in a cute, they put me in a cubicle and the cubicle had at that time, you know, they had basically a bunch of bookshelves and everybody stored their content on these loose leaf binders. Right. And then people had paper file cabinets. So I didn't know what was important. All I knew is when I checked my comp plan, it says you sell this, your team sells this much, you get paid this much. Okay. That's pretty simple. doesn't say anything about having a process paper inside the office. Right. So what I did is I played softball at the time with a bunch of people down in shipping. So I went down there and there was a guy named John Wagner and I said, Hey, John, grab your guys, grab some hand trucks and a bunch of boxes. Come on up to, to my office. So there were four of them standing there in the office. And I said, I want you to throw everything out. John says, throw everything out. I said, throw it all out. So they took it all and put it all in the dumpster. And then I'd go on sales calls. And at that time you had like an inbox and an outbox. People would stick paper in your inbox. And then when something was going to go out, you'd put it in the outbox and your secretary would pick it up and distribute it through the office. Almost like automated email now. So. <laughs> Remember, this is my first management job. So, so then every time I'd come back from the office making sales calls, I would I put my trash can right near the inbox and the outbox, and I'd take all my paper from the inbox and just throw it in the trash can. And then after a couple of weeks, people would come to me and say, "Hey, John, like I sent you this document five times, like you and you haven't responded." And I said, "Well, why should I respond? Why is it important? Why do I have to do it now?" can it wait? You know? So through that process, I kind of figured out what was really important and what was really urgent and the things I had to do versus doing other people's work. Cause in a bigger company, more and more people are always looking to be busy, looking to do something and kind of making their priorities, your priorities. And my priority was always check your comp plan. You help your people sell. You make more money. Simple. Where did this mindset come from, John? Was this just something that you had? Was it something that was maybe taught to you? Because, you know, this, there's obviously a, a very specific character trait here in you. I just really need to understand what the inspiration is of this mindset and approach. Psychology session is going to go deep now. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be getting the NLP out next in a minute. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Are you going to hypnotize me next? Um, I think it's a good question. Even when I was a manager there for like a couple of years, and then I remember getting bored by the bureaucrats because I would went and when I decided to leave, I was in a meeting with all the first line managers and second line managers, and then we had the third line managers up in front of us. They were never talking about what we can do to help make the salespeople more productive. It was always some internal bureaucratic bullshit, you know? And I remember sitting there looking around the room thinking, who could be a role model for me here? I don't really admire any of these people. And I hope that in 10 years, I don't look like some of those guys because I'm not impressed. So I got to get out of here. So then I almost felt a little bit like a caged animal, like I had to get out and find something completely different. And that's when, you know, I found PTC at the time, which hadn't even done a million dollars yet. But, and a lot of people thought I was crazy and I probably was, 
but I just needed something different. And I needed to prove to myself that I could do this by myself on my own without the backing of a bigger company. And remember at that time, HP wasn't that big. I think when I was there, they went from 2 billion to 8 billion. Now they're, I don't know what they are now. And they wound up selling that division off, wound up calling it a company called Agilent. So what was the driving force then, John? You know, because you mentioned not coming from a privileged background. Um, you, know, you looked at sales for the fact that there was an opportunity to earn good money um, rather than engineering where you could earn less money potentially. Um, was it the money that was driving you or was it at that point the ideas, seeing that there was something you know, fundamentally wrong or there was a way of being more efficient in a sales process? Mm. Or a combination of both? At that time, I think it was just money and trying to be somebody. Right. That's, I mean, let's be, okay. let's be okay. truthful. That's all it really was at that time. It yeah. probably cha- changed over time, but at that time, that's all it was. I needed to make some money and I wanted to be somebody. Sure. And so at a really good point here, which is PTC, in previous conversations, you mentioned two very influential people, uh, you know, and probably your mentors at that stage, Dick Harrison and Steve Wolski. How did they influence you and what was their role in, in, in helping you develop? Well, Steve would take more of a intellectual and analytical approach to things. So he gave you that side of a, of an issue. And then Dick was just blunt and to the point and could see right through lots of bullshit, which was really at that time refreshing to me versus, you know, coming out of PTC, coming out of uh, HP. So I really enjoyed the, the two different styles, like one guy's going to tell you, okay, here's how we analyze it. Here's the intellectual approach to it. And then Harrison just boom, hits, hits the nail right on the head with the hammer. So I think I learned, I learned a lot from both those guys. Did they just take you under your wing straight away and say, John's our guy, where you kind of almost groomed as at entry point or how did that relationship materialize? Well, you had to perform. There was no, no doubt that inside PTC at that time, it was pure Darwinism. So you eat, only the strong survived. In fact, people used to make jokes when we would have like, you know, national sales conferences. They would say, even in the early days, okay, go around the room, stand up, introduce yourself and, you know, tell us how long you've been here. And some people would stand up and say, you know, hey, I'm John McMahon. I'm from Boston and I've been here for nine quarterly contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make it clear, like if you don't perform, you know, you're going. I think I kind of thrived in that environment. I thrived in the, in the, was there a lot of pressure? Sure. And there was, but I think when you hire the right people, they put that type of pressure on themselves. What I learned over time is you don't have to, as a leader, you don't have to put that type of pressure on if you recruited the right people. Yeah. I have to wonder if my guys are getting up early in the morning and going to bed late at night. If I have to wonder about those types of things and if they're truly motivated and if they're giving me everything that they got, then I recruited the wrong person. So. I I think we've already started to build a bit of a picture as to the foundations because when you actually look at your playbook, you kind of reflect on where you've come from and actually the necessity to build the various elements that have given you the success. I think, you know, this is really, really helpful to kind of see that, right? We're going to talk a lot more about the playbook actually shortly. So, yeah, we're looking forward to it kind of exploring that. (laughs) So... Do you think you would have got to where you got to had it not been for your experience at PTC? No, 
no way. No way you're going to go grow up as a salesperson inside big companies like HP, Salesforce.com, IBM, Oracle. You're not going to do that and be able to then go out into a startup, a raw, raw startup and have the skills, the instincts, you know, to be able to basically survive. You never survived on your own. You never had to do everything on your own. You know, in a startup, you have to do everything on your own, everything, you know? And a lot of people just are unwilling to do that. And I've seen plenty of people that even, they might've come to PTC, you know, after things started going pretty well, but they could, it was still considered maybe a startup, the same thing at Blade Logic and other companies. And then all of a sudden they say, hey, you know, I wanna be a CRO or something. And they get a job either as a CRO or even a mid-level management job at a startup, like at a startup. And then they realize, holy smokes, you know, I had one guy that called me and said, they didn't give me a laptop. I said, well, go buy a laptop, <laughs> but there's no expense forms, make an expense form, you know, those types of things. So some people think they were in startups, but they were never really in startups and they don't have the drive, the motivation, the conviction to, to pull things off that they normally always had somebody else helping them with. And so your reputation obviously started to develop within PTC. At what point did you start to feel, do you know what, I can really make a difference here and I, I'm the one that's steering this ship. How long did that take and kind of talk us through that process? I don't ever think I really steered the ship. I'd say like Harrison and Walski were steering the ship, but I knew that it was having a huge impact on the way in which we were recruiting people, more formalizing who we were recruiting and more formalizing the sales process and how you qualify deals and training people. That's really where it had an impact. Like if you, like when I first met Dick as an example, he knew instinctively that he was recruiting character and character traits but I don't think he ever had it written down on a piece of paper and he never really shared it. As an example, like when I first met Dick, I walked into his office, takes a look at my resume, he leans back in his chair, touches his hair a little bit, then leans forward and says, so what do you, you working for HP? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, what do you sell? I said, I sell ME10 and ME30, which at that time was a competing product to PTC's product. So then he leans back a little bit and then he comes forward and we're almost knee to knee already because Dick never really had a, he never, he had a desk, but he always put his chair in front of the desk, which is pretty interesting. So that when you sat down in his office, you were almost knee to knee with him. And he takes his finger and he points it straight into my chest and he goes, you can't design an effing doorknob with that shit. <laughs> And I go, yeah, I know, but I'm selling that shit. So imagine how much of your shit I could sell. And then he loved it, right? But what he was looking for, my point is that what Dick was looking for was the character of the person. Like, it, are they really intelligent? Are they really driven? Are they courageous? You know, can they take, you know, even that, that moment there, are they going to fold right there? If they're going to fold right there under that type of pressure, then they're going to fold in front of customers or they're going to fold at some point, you know, in their career. So Dick was really smart about 
going straight after characteristics when he was recruiting somebody. Um, there were a lot of people that really had the right instincts about what to do, but no one ever really tried to formalize it. You know, how do you, what is the sales process? What is the qualification methodology? How do we onboard people? What do we train them on? You know, what are the characteristics that we're looking for when we're, we are recruiting somebody? That stuff all developed over time. And I suppose that's really where you you took charge on that, right? And that's obviously where... Yeah, I had help. I mean, sure, for sure. There were a lot of really smart people there. Well, so if we, if we go straight to kind of medic, right? So I, I know that's obviously one of the, the core pillars. Um, medic is so commonly used now. Most B2B organizations use medic. It's... it's it's almost too common uh, in, in, in many in many respects, but you're one of the well, they, use it, they throw it around as an acronym, but very few people actually use it the right way. In fact, I've heard people say it's a sales process. It's not a sales process. It's a qualification methodology. So a lot of people throw that around, but they don't really know what they're talking about. It was very much yourself and Jack. Obviously, Jack uh, Naples was the one that pieced the acronym together. You know, you, you, you say Jack was incredible at making things simple and finding ways to simplify concepts like this, but it was you and you and Jack that kind of put me. Jack's a super creative guy, really intelligent, very, very funny. Could, could almost be a stand-up comedian. So, I mean, if we walk through it, like in the beginning at PTC, it was a, on-premise products. So you had to ship a CD, right? So, and people, those days we, we did pretty fast development. So every six months we came out with a new release of the product. Whereas today, you know, with SaaS, you could do it every hour, every day, every week. But for the first, until Rev7, the product didn't work. So there were three and a half years of it not working. And our sales process was pretty simple. Demo, close. So when the customer would say, hey, you know, I want, uh, you did a really good, de so our demo was super, our, we would do a little presentation on the whiteboard, talk about our five different features and functions, and then we'd give a demo, super canned, very choreographed, and then we were done. And now we would, they would say, hey, this is really cool. Let's do a, let's do an evaluation. Nope. How about a loaner? Nope. What about a rental? Nope. How about a benchmark? Nope. How about I lease it? Nope. Well, what can I do? You can buy it. And now the tension in the room got really high. And now you had to really convince the customer that they had to buy now. So we were kind of a little bit like pots and pans sales guys or vacuum cleaner sales guys at the time. Sales process was short. Present really quickly, demo, and then close. Then as the product started to work at Rev7, we realized, hey, the product works but there's other companies that compete against us that have a lot more functionality. So what we have to do is narrow the scope or the criteria of what, whenever we're going to test the product to know that the customer is going to buy what we're selling because the pe person that controls the criteria is the person that's going to win the deal. So that's where we realized, Hey, one, we got whoever controls the decision criteria is going to win. So there's decision criteria. And you can't let people change the process constantly on. You have to know what that process is and try to control the process. Like when are people going to present? You know, when is the, dem when is the demo going to be? When is the 
benchmark going to be and how is it going to be scored and how is it going to be weighted? So we were masters at that. And then we realized the only way internally you're ever going to control that is you have to get a champion. So there's the C for champion. Then we started to want to sell bigger deals and the way you sell bigger deals or, and, and, and then also ensure that you're going to get the deal. You have to get to an economic buyer to, that says, yes, this is a priority for me. And if you test to this criteria with, and the champion sitting there with you, then we will give you the deal. Then product started to get better and better. And now, we wanted to call much higher in an organization. Because if you really think about CAD, in almost all the big companies at the time, there was a director of CAD. So you would think, hey, let me just go sell to the director of CAD. But the director of CAD had no pain, right? They went home at five o'clock every night. Their engineers had a CAD system. CAD system might be horrible and the engineers might be suffering, but why did the CAD manager or director care? So anytime you'd go sell your whiz-bang features and functions to the CAD director, he always had an answer. Well, you know, I talked to my current vendor and in six months, they're going to have the same functions. You know, it's, oh, it's a leapfrog game. Don't worry, John. Like, we're okay. So then you realize, well, who, who owns the pain in this organization? Who owns engineering productivity? Who owns time to market? Who owns engineering costs? Wow, that's the VP of engineering. He has pain. I could sell to them, but the CAD director doesn't have pain. So now we had to get higher. So now we had to get to the economic buyer. Well, when you go in and talk to an economic buyer, you can't just start asking them a whole bunch of questions. You had to have done your homework to understand their before process and their 2B process, you know, the before and after. And you had to build, you had to quantify that. So you had to investigate the I, identify the pain, the problems, and then you had to quantify the pain in the before, and you also had to quantify the tangible business outcomes that you were gonna to talk to the economic buyer about, all molded into a cost justification. And that's where you know, the rest of Medic kind of formulated. So just tell us a little bit about the difference between a champion and a coach. What, what is the difference? Do you know the answer? Or are you just asking me that because we're on a, like a video cast? <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you, I'm not going to test you. <laughs> you got a little worried there. <laughs> you face, you got a little well, I'm asking the questions today. <laughs> okay, that's right. You're in command. You guys are in command and control. No, it's a great question, Simon. So, if you think about an organization chart, what is that? That's just a hierarchy of different people that are in different positions inside a company and it's a report tells you who reports to who and those people that are on the org chart they have authority right but what you're interested in when you're in a salesperson is you're interested in finding a champion a champion is somebody that has influence and they have influence or power through political power or some sort of domain expertise or technical expertise. So therefore they have influence. So what we would always say is let's go build a power chart, not an org chart, a power chart and figure out who has influence. So now you have four sets of people in an organization. You have people that have, you, got, you wanna stay away from Nina and you wanna stay away from Annie. 
Nina, no influence, no authority. Annie, authority and no influence, right? And you want to go find influence and authority and influence but no authority, right? So you want to find those people. So the influence and the no authority might be somebody with that technical expertise or domain experience. And somebody with influence and authority, they might you might find them on the org chart and find out they have real influence, right? There's somebody that is going to get promoted. They're being put on initiatives. You know, the, the C-level is asking them questions. They made some of the last big purchases inside the company. These people have real influence. So it's not necessarily that a CEO or C-level person walks outside their door and then only talks to the people that report to them about key decisions. They may go down three, four, five, six levels to find the person that has that type of expertise or somebody that has real influence. And with that influence, that champion can get access to the economic buyer. So that's really the difference, Simon. Like a coach may want you to win. A coach may coach you. They may give you inside information. There's a whole bunch of things that they might do, but they don't have the influence to get into the economic buyer's office. And as a salesperson, you got to find somebody that has power in the organization so that when you're not there, they can influence other people. And then when the time is right and you've done all that cost justification work, you've lined out the decision criteria and the decision process with the with your champion, now it's time to go to the economic buyer and confirm that all this stuff is true and that if you do this benchmark POC validation event, that they will buy and they will buy for X amount of dollars and within a specific time frame. So then what you're doing is you're basically giving your champion a license to buy your product. You basically confirmed everything in the front part of the sales process confirmed it with the economic buyer. Yes, that's all true. The economic buyer says it is a priority. We do have that need. We will buy in a time frame, and I have access to the budget, right? And then now you, you confirmed all that. You've already set the decision criteria. Now your product just has to work in that criteria and you're done. You gave your champion a license to buy. I suppose just reflecting on what I know about sales, sales guys, right? It must have been a really difficult conversation when you're having the debate with your sales rep. You have a coach, you don't have a champion. How did you manage that? You know, because it, it is it is subjective, but managing that mindset, how did you wrestle that particular part of this? Well, you have to ask a bunch of questions, right? You have to ask why they think the person has is a champion. You know, did they, have they ever made a purchase for a million dollars before? Um, what do other people say about them? Have they ever been on a critical project? Are they running any initiatives for the company? Um, how long you been calling on the, on this company? I've been calling on them for like six months. Okay. And you have a, you have a champion? You have a champion. Have you met the economic buyer? No, you don't have a champion. So is that broken down in a, in a kind of a checklist or, or is that just instinct? Is that just you, you know, probing? How, how much of that? That's, that's MedPick. It's basically understanding how all the parts of MedPick work in order to qualify a deal, right? Yeah. So you, ha you have the coach, you have the champion, you have the economic buyer, the decision criteria. So you could ask, have you written the decision criteria with your champ, supposed champion? Do you, can you outline what the decision process is? I can't outline it. Okay, well, tell me 
why they have to buy. Tell me not the features and functions that they like, because that's typically what maybe a coach likes. They like all the technical whiz-bang features. Tell me why they have to buy. Tell me the business problem, because the person that's going to, if you think about it, has access to the economic buyer, is the person that's going to go in that office and speak about business problems. They're not going to go in and start talking about technology and features and functions. The economic buyer doesn't care about that. They have people for that and they push you right. They relegate you down to where you belong when you speak like that. You can almost tell when you, if you make a sales call with somebody and they say, yeah, you know, going on a call with Simon. Hey, Simon, now, how long you been calling this account? Four months. Okay, great. You got a champion? Yeah, definitely have a champion. How long you had the champion? Two months. Great. You go in and talk to the person. The person never talks in business terms, never asks about other businesses that are doing what you're proposing that they do. You start to realize, you know, they have a small world view of issues. You know, they, they look through small eyes. They don't really see the big picture. They don't see the business issues. They're not trying to solve big business problems. As an example, I made a sales call with a guy one time and we asked the CIO, hey, you have thousands of vendors that call on you all the time. Tell us how you know who to deal with. Well, you know, John, think of, think of me as somebody that is managing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of forest land. Most people, even the people that work for me and even the people inside the company think that I'm a firefighter, like I'm supposed to put out all the fires. But like any company, we have thousands of pain points. But really, at the end of the day, I'm a forest ranger. I look at the biggest problems in the forest and the ones that may threaten the business. And those are the ones that I solve because those are the ones that are gonna have the biggest impact on the business. So if you really wanna sell into the C-suite, you have to learn how to find big business problems that get above the noise, get above the noise, get above everybody else. Everybody else is just features, functions, blah, blah, blah. But it's, and you might get deals, you might get a 20K deal, 30, 40, 50K but you're not going to get the multi-million dollar deals, you know, solving small technical problems. So, so would you just walk away? If you realized, you know what, I'm not where I need to be with this. What, what do you do? Yeah, you walk away. They're not buying what I'm selling. And you might even come into a sales process late and where the chant, maybe your competition's already been in there and they, they have a champion and they've outlined what the criteria is. And now you've come in late and then you try to run your process where you discover what their pain is and quantify their pain and implicate the pain. And then you realize, hey, I'm late to the party here. They're not giving me a chance. They're not really answering my questions. They're not really interested in what I have to say. They're not interested in my product. They're not buying what I'm selling. I'll see you later. I'm going someplace else. That happens all the time. Or RFPs. How many people answer an RFP? I mean, any RFP that I've ever seen or whether I created it or some other salesperson created it. And then companies just take, you know, the data that the sales rep created, put it in their boilerplate, put their, you know, company name on the top and send it out. But that thing's already been cooked. There's already a champion for that product. 
the sales guy, the competitive salesperson's been in there for months cooking this deal. And now you're going to answer an RFP? It's insane. Insane. The only way to answer an RFP, and we have done it, it works sometimes. You get back in to find out who's on that committee and who's who the stakeholders are. And then what you do is you try to see if they're going to give you enough time to run your sales process, the discovery process, the scoping process, quantification, implication. If you can't run that and they're just trying to rush you and they won't change anything in the RFP, they won't change anything, they're not buying what you're selling. It's time to go someplace else. You know, not everybody's a prospect for your product. I, I, I want to just reflect, just take a bit of a, a kind of a back, you know, step back here and just, there's a lot of organizations that use Medic. Not all of them do it very successfully. But actually one of the things that we've discovered speaking to the various people as part of this podcast series is that by itself it's not enough. And what I mean by that is you do need the right people in order to be able to make something like Medic work because of the mindset, the discipline, the things you spoke about, character, the rest of it. How do you feel about that, John? I disagree. I think, um, do you like any sports? I love all sports. I'm a- Tell me soccer, soccer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sport though, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't agree with it, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> No, but think about it. Any sports coach has a playbook, right? You know, where's all on this play as we pull, take the ball down the field, where's Ollie supposed to be? Where's Simon supposed to be? How are they supposed to be looking? Who's supposed to pass? When are you supposed to pass? All that stuff's in a playbook, right? Think about the playbook as your sales process and the, and the way in which I know that Ali's going to be able to pull this off is I know because I recruited him that in this part of the field and even, and then the next part of the field and the next part of the field, the skills change and the knowledge, his knowledge changes as the play develops. And if he doesn't have certain skills or he doesn't have certain knowledge, he's not going to be able to pull this thing off. That's no different than a sales process. In each stage of a sales process, you have certain skills that the rep has to have and certain knowledge that they have to have in order to complete that stage of the sales process and then exit it and go into the next stage of the sales process, right? Now, every coach also looks at film and they analyze the film and they say, hey, look on that play. We told Ollie to be at center, center I don't know your name of your, your stuff, but it's center field or center ice because I'm a hockey guy at center ice, and he wasn't. He was three steps three steps ahead of center ice. No wonder the pass from Simon got caught by the competition because they blocked that lane, right? So as they analyze it, they're analyzing like where you were, what skills you have, and what what knowledge you should have maintained. But But right there, you didn't have the knowledge to make sure that you were at center ice, right? So... When you think about MedPick, it sits on top of a sales process. And for each stage, you can basically qualify in that stage. Like, let's say, Ali, you come to me and you say, you got a deal. What, am I, what I'm going to try to do is figure out where you are. So think about, let me give you a better analogy. Sales process is like a Google map. If I want to drive from Boston to New York today, I type in 
New York, Central Park South, 59th and 7th, and boom, it tells me how long it's going to take to get there. And it gives me an ideal route, right? Yeah. Sales process. Now, qualification methodology is MedPick. MedPick sits on top of the map, the GPS. And now when I'm driving and I think, hey, you know, I'm 20 miles before Hartford, Connecticut. I check my GPS and it says, no, you're not. You're 30 miles before Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, okay. And if I pull off to get gas, it tells me to wait the different turns to get back on to the ideal route to get there in the, in the quickest amount of time, right? So if you think about MedPick, when you, you qualify, just like a GPS, where is Ollie on that map? And now what information does he have? You know, what information should he have gained already? You know, who should he have met? And what's his next logical step? That's really what MedPick is doing. It's a GPS sitting on top of a Google map. Does that make sense? It goes hand in hand. So anybody that says MedPick is a sales process, they're wrong. Or MedPick by itself, I could use. Wrong. If you don't, just like you're not going to use a GPS without a map. Mm. And you're not using a map without a GPS anymore, right? So yeah. they have to work seamlessly together. Does, it, does that make sense? Just yeah. like a coach analyzing film. They're doing the same thing. They're analyzing where you were on that play, where you should have been, what's missing. Did you not have the skill to pull it off? Did you not have the knowledge? Could you not compete against the, the competitive person? What would be your next logical step to correct it, you know, and get the play back on track? For sure. And I think with that qualification process, what you are ensuring then is that your reps are focusing their time on stuff that will close. Well, more importantly, I can coach and train them. Yeah. So if I realize that every time Ollie gets to stage two, he, he, he can't get past this certain step, then yeah. I, I can ask myself, well, is that because he's lacking a skill or is that because he lacks some knowledge of what to do next? Yeah. So now I know what to train you on so I can analyze my players, right, and figure out what I should train them on. The second thing is you guys are in the recruiting business and – a a job description shouldn't be a bunch of blah, 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 blah. should be a great corporate citizen and all that stuff. It, that's all nice. But at the end of the day, it has to have the skills and the knowledge that fall out of the sales process. Right. Think about it. It just like a, if we were going to go recruit, we had billions of dollars and we we're going to go recruit people for the next soccer team. We're going to look at each position and for each position, we're going to figure out what is the knowledge that that player has to have and what is the skill set that they have to have to pull that off, right? That's the game. And now that's going to go into the job description. That's going to go into the recruiting profile of who we have to have. So every company should be looking at their sales process and say, what are those knowledge and what are the skills in the process for each different stage and put that in the job description instead of, Ali needs to be a nice guy and he needs to work with other people in the company. Yeah, that's all important, but that doesn't mean that he's going to be a great player. Does that make sense? Completely. Yeah. I think leads on to quite a nice point, right? Which is, is to talk about the importance of the next part of your playbook, which is recruitment, right? Um, it's, it goes without saying every conversation that we've had with anybody that has been your mentee or, or work with you that, this is a real big part of it, right? 
Um, it's a fundamental part of the playbook to see success. I mean, if you can't recruit the right people, like just yeah. imagine again, we got a couple billion dollars and we're going to go buy a, any sports team. What's mm -hmm. the first thing that we would do? Go to assess the players. And if we have the right sure. players, you better get the right players on the field or we have no chance of winning. It won't yeah. matter how good the coach is. It won't matter how good the playbook is. We have to be able to recruit the right people. So, you know, I think it doesn't happen all the time, but about most of the time you recruit B's and C's and do everything else perfect. You're not going that far. You recruit A's and do everything else average. They're going to help you win. You probably, chances are you're going to the championship. Yeah. Where does the, where, where does the ownership fall in for, for, for recruitment? Is it the, the managers, how much, you know, we see a lot of businesses that set up talent acquisition functions, et cetera, but where does it start? Where is the, it has to fall. It can't fall in HR. They don't really know what a salesperson looks like. It has to fall right on the managers and you have to teach managers. If, if you really believe that you're going to hire reps that can become managers and managers that can become directors and directors that can become VPs, you have to train them and you have to train them what to look for when they're recruiting. How do you interview? What do you look for in a resume or a CV? What questions do you ask? You know, how do you back channel them? You have to ask all those questions. You have to train the hell out of them. And how do you do that training process? What, what does that training process look like? Well, first you have the recruiting profile, right? That falls out of your sales process. And then you also have to, you have characteristics like we were talking about, you know, with, with Dick Harrison. Yeah. You have to understand the right characteristics that you have to recruit. So two of the most important ones are intelligence and drive. So if a person's, because we talked about skills and knowledge. So if the person's super intelligent, they're going to be able to pick up the knowledge that you give them. If they're super driven, they're going to pick up the skills because skills are like throwing a football, you know, throwing darts. You know, if you really want to be the best, you're going to have to decide that you're going to throw that dart a thousand times a day. And if you're not going to do it, you're not going to be good because skills are developed over time. And that, so that takes persistence and drive and motivation, determination. And then, if it's a fast growing company, you need people that are not only coachable, that'll listen to what you say, but you need people that are adaptable. So in a lot of companies I've been in, you know, one year you're thinking, ah, oh, this person's really amazing. It's a, this one skill that they have. It's just so good. And they're just really on top of things. And two years later, you look at them and think they're a dinosaur. Like they haven't changed. They haven't adapted. Why? The products change, the markets change, the customers change, competitions change, messaging's changed, sales processes change. They haven't changed. They didn't adapt. So, you know, adapting is really big. And then integrity, if they don't have the, ha have integrity, it's hard enough to run a business anyway, without having people spin the ball on you all the time. Just tell me the truth and we can figure it out together. Don't try to spin the ball on me. It's already hard enough. And in, in an interview process and, and, and from a training process, how do you then train and identify those what would be quite hard you know, characteristics to, to understand, such as characteristics? You know, how, do you how, how can you tell and what sort of qualification process would you? 
Yeah, well, let's back up first. Like most people interview to the CV or the or the LinkedIn resume or the res or just the resume, right? So they look at it and they start, you know, going through that. But what does a resume tell you? Tells you the jobs they had, how long they were on the job. Does it tell you the knowledge they have? Maybe a little. Does it tell you the skills they have that they can find a champion and get to an economic buyer? It doesn't tell you any of that stuff, right? Does it tell you how smart they are? Tell you how driven they are? No, it doesn't tell you any of that. So it's hard, Ali, to really figure out like how smart somebody is, but you know, you can have different indicators. It's hard to tell how competitive or driven somebody is, um, but you can start to tell. I mean, you can ask questions like, what's the most, I'd like to ask, what's the most competitive thing you ever did in your life? And now you have to not just ask that one question, you have to ask the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth question. And what do they do today to compete? And then what's the toughest situation you've ever been in your entire life? And they'll say, just, you mean business? And I go, no, anything. Tell me, walk me through it. And now you ask the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth question. And you have to be careful with some of those questions. I've had people bring back, you know, hard memories and start crying in my office. But the way in which they got out of that situation told me a lot about them and their drive, right? So there's ways of doing it, but I think you have to spend the first 30 to 40 minutes just going after the characteristics. The other thing that, you know, I've done is there's companies like Profiles International, and they have a test called the Profiles XT. It's not a test. It's not a personality test. What it really is is an assessment of how the candidate does in comparison of characteristics to your current top salespeople. So what you do is you have have your top salespeople take the assessment. It scores them on different characteristics. For the most part, those top reps all fall into a certain band, whether it's manageability, coachability, independence, learning index, those types of areas, which means that at this time, at this stage of our company, these are the top, these are the characteristics that are helping reps win deals, right? And be able to survive, right? If we took somebody from like a salesforce.com into a startup, chances are they're not going to make it. Why? They're probably going to lack some of these characteristics that we just talked about. Wow. Then what you do is you have the candidate go through the set, through the interview process. And just before they see someone like myself, then we would have them take the assessment in the office. And then I get the results and now I see exactly how they compare to my top salespeople. If they compare favorably to my top salespeople, they'd be stupid not to take the job because it means they have all the characteristics to be successful. And if they don't compare favorably, it doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't hire them two years from now. It means that their characteristics, their traits don't play favorably to the company we are at this current stage of our growth. Does that make sense? sense yeah there's other ways to find out about character yeah than just you know than just asking questions i'll tell you what a tool like that will be absolutely invaluable across lots of businesses right it's uh well it's also invaluable because 
let's say you made some mistakes, which we all do. And then you had a number of people that attrited over time. And now you can go back and analyze, well, was there a certain trait that they did all these people had in common that we missed? Because maybe they were all a seven, let's say on coachability. And we still said, ah, there are five or six, we'll still take them because they're good on everything else. And then you realize all the people that left were just below seven on coachability. Okay, we have our answer. From now on, anybody that's like not seven or above on coachability, forget about it. You're going to lose them. So there's things like that to go back and analyze. Some places where you didn't really pay attention fully to the assessment and you took some shortcuts and you paid for them. Yeah. I suppose the intelligence piece itself is... It's fairly, I said, it's a lot more transparent, right? You can look at the level of degree, their education, you know, learning lots of different languages because it's, you know, there's a track record in that, right? Well, there's book smarts, but there's street smarts too, right? There's intuition. Yeah. yeah. Like, golly, how, how do you think you're doing right now in this interview? Ooh, that's a tough question, right? Now, that's what salespeople have to do though. Yeah. If the person can't tell you, or perceive how they're doing and give you both sides of the fence of how they think they're doing in the interview process right now, how are they gonna perceive how they're doing in a sales situation? So there's different questions that you can ask to, to, to find those types of things out too. John, uh, so John, I know that you um, really drilled this in your teams, right? It wasn't just a matter of a casual thing. Recruitment's really important, guys. You have to focus on recruitment. You used to get them to stand up and talk through this. You know, this was a very, very fundamental part. Can you just talk to us about the extremes that you went to to get your managers to, to own this part of the process? The extremes? Okay, but, you know, really you meant like coaching. <laughs> <laughs> I had the whip out and everything, you know. So, no, I, what we would do exercise, we basically take a whole day and only talk about recruiting. So we walk through like, what are the characteristics? What is the minimum track record or experience that they need to have? You know, what are the, what's the minimum skill set that they have to have? What's the minimum knowledge level about our industry that they, that they should have? And then go walk through resumes, LinkedIn profiles, CVs, and teach people how do you actually read a resume? How do you read a CV? You know, what do you look for? Where, what are the red flags? And then even take like 10 resumes, you crossed off names and you basically have the groups divide up and then come back and tell us, like rank those 10 CVs. Tell me one, two, three, four, up to 10 and tell me why you ranked one over the other. So it becomes really interesting discussions. And then how do you, what open-ended questions do you ask to uncover intelligence, drive, coachability, adaptability, you know, that the person has that skill set, has that knowledge? Dig in and don't just ask the surface questions. Dig in. Then you have to come back with, tell me what the risks are. Because no one's going to be an ideal fit to your profile. You, you know, you're not, you, you're not really going to find a unicorn. So where's the risk? 
And the reason it's important to put down the risk is, you know, different companies at different stages have different resources to cover risk, right? If you're in a raw startup and you don't really have any training program, you're doing like 1 million, 5 million, 15 million, you don't really have a formal training program yet. You don't have resources to cover somebody's shortfall. So how are you going to cover? So you'd like people to come back to you and say, here's where they lack. Okay. And here's how we can cover for those risks. If you can't cover, you're taking a big chance and that's how your attrition rate goes up. And the number one killer to annual bookings is, is sales rep attrition. So do you think your sales enablement, again, another big part of your playbook is, is training. Do you think that was fundamental in allowing you to go for people that had the right, I want to use the word DNA, but the right attributes, because it meant that you didn't need to compensate with people with experience because you knew you then had the right process to get these people up to speed. Is that kind of a thought process or just kind of talk us a little bit about your emphasis on training? Well, first they have to have the right characteristics. So one of my sayings is, if their mom and dad couldn't change them by the time they were 18, you ain't changing them. You're not gonna change their characteristics. You might be able to, if they're smart enough, give them some knowledge. And if they're driven enough, help them develop new skills, but you're not gonna change their character. Their mom and dad couldn't change it in 18 years. You're gonna change it in the next six months? Not gonna happen, right? So you gotta start with you know recruiting the right people. And then, when you're running a company or running a sales force, you, you're really trying, it, there's a little bit of a game. And what's, what's, what are the rules of the game? The rules of the game are my sales reps have a certain ramp time. Let's say that's six months before they're up to speed. And then every quarter after that, they're making their number. Number two, they get to my, my sales force gets to an average productivity level. Right. And what I'm trying to do is increase that average productivity level. And then three, there's attrition. Those three factors play a huge part in how much I'm gonna book at the end of the year and the end of the next year. So that, if that's the game, those are the rules of the game. What can I do to hire the best people to beat the ramp time? So I'm gonna train the hell out of them as soon as they come, out, come on board, right? So I'm gonna try to beat that ramp time of six months. If I could beat that across 100 sales reps by a month and the average Let's, let's play easy numbers. The average quote is 1.2 million, 50 times $100,000, I'm making some gains, right? And now I gotta make them as productive as possible. So every quarter, every week, we're training, 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 trying to develop new skills, trying to figure out what's the person lacking, you know, using MedPick to figure out where they're failing in the sales process. And now we're gonna try to beat that average productivity. If the average productivity is 1.2 million and I have, 100 sales reps and I can make it 1.3, I just picked up a lot of money, right? And then if I recruited the right people, I onboard them right, I do ongoing training and enablement, and then they're successful and they don't attrit, I just, I just played the game. I just beat the three factors of the game. Mm. So mm. if you really think about it that way, and I don't know if many people think about it that simply, but that's the game as a CRO or a game, even if you're the first line sales manager, I got to recruit great people. I got to onboard them fast, get them as productive as 
quickly as possible. I got to get them as highly productive as possible. And I got to stop them from attriting. You know, if you think about attrition and most companies, if they have a six month ramp time and the person's not doing well, because maybe they made a mistake in hiring, how long does it typically go? Not nine months, a lot of companies, 12 months before they realize, oh boy, we made a mistake. Now we're going to pull the trigger and get rid of the person. Then it's three more months to recruit. Then it's six more months to ramp because now you have the right person. And now they're productive maybe for the next three months in this, in the second year versus hiring the right person the first time and training them and developing them and making sure they don't attrit. The difference in that two year period over the course of a hundred, 200 sales reps, the numbers are enormous. I think it's really interesting because a lot of the podcasts we've done, you know, it's clear you kept every single one of your reps on their toes in the questions around product, around process, around the aspect of the job, you would at you know, any time be in a position to start asking questions. We've heard about you standing up and going around the room at QBRs, at sales kickoffs, asking, okay. getting everybody to stand up and ask three questions, answer three questions. And the ownership that, that those individuals had on making sure that they were on point, they answered the correct questions and they got it right, they had. And when you actually speak to them, I said, was that, about, you know, was that scare tactics? Were you scared to lose your job if you did that? And it wasn't, it was just, there was, you know, they knew that by learning it and, and understanding it would just be, you know, tenfold over you know, what, what they needed to do to get to where they wanted to get to fundamentally, right? Well, when I used to do that, I had to know my stuff, right? So I would say to yeah. them, when they couldn't answer the question, I'd say, uh, how is it possible? that I know this and you don't. You sell this every single day. And then I would joke and I would say, and all I do all day long is chicken shit, putting out fires all day long. And then how is it that I know this stuff? So I think, you know, if you joke that way and at the end of the day, people know that the reason that you're doing it is because you have their best interests at heart. It's not, you're not attacking them. You're not trying to degrade them what you're trying to do is make them better. And if you recruited the right people, they want to get better. They want to get pushed. They want to go to new levels that they didn't even think they could go to. And when you can get them there to levels that they never thought they could get to, they're not leaving you, right? It's not going to happen. John, I want, to, I want to give you some feedback, right? So we've spoken to quite a lot of people. Are you right? it? <laughs> here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Now, what they've said to us is that John's not your friend, he's not your enemy. You, you kind of want to run through walls for the guy. You know, when I give you that kind of information, what's your thoughts when, when I kind of, this is how people obviously speak about you, people that you've obviously managed? It's because, you know, I think you have to believe that if you want to get what you want, you have to help everybody else get what they want. And you have to... You really have to have their best interests at heart. So sometimes when, you know, the company would, would grow one quarter, two quarters, three quarters, and you'd look at some people and you'd think, they're not moving, they're not growing. Like something's just not right. So you take them in a room. I used to call it the hot seat, or maybe they called it the hot seat, and then I started. <laughs> 
But you have to have time as a leader. You have to decide this is not a five-minute conversation. I don't know where this could go. It could, depending upon the way they receive the information, this could be a five-minute conversation. It could be an hour discussion. And a lot of people, when you first sit them down, they're like, oh, what's wrong? What's going on? Like, and they're, they're a little nervous. And then the next reaction is that they're very defensive as you start to lay out, you know, is everything okay? Is everything okay at home? everything good with the kids? Is wife okay? Everything, you know, is the husband okay? All that type of stuff. And they're wondering like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, where's this thing going, right? But at the end of the day, they, they realize that you care about them and you believe that they shouldn't stay at this level. They should be at the next level. And then you tell them, here's why I think you should be there. I think you should be there. Other people think you should be there. And for your own benefit, you need to step up. You need to make a transition. It's time. You've been, you've been stagnant for too long. And I'll help you. Here's what I think you're lacking. And I'll help you get there. And then when you can help people get there and they step up and you saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves, they're not going anywhere right? Where are they going to go? Even if the company has a bad quarter, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. You're not going to find somebody else like that. It's the old saying, you know, people don't leave company, don't leave uh, companies, they leave managers. If we were to, again, reflect on the, the, the kind of overall picture, right? The 33 CXOs, the topic we're talking about here today, right? What's amazing is that these guys don't just go in and improve performance they transform culture within an organization i've seen firsthand organizations uh, that were floating along at best and then one of your cro's pops in and then within a few months they've completely transformed the culture of the business you know what what, what do you put that down to how, how do you create that whole purpose that vision that what, what, what is it that these guys are doing and you're doing to enable that to happen? I think it's all the stuff we talked about. It's First of all, it's leadership, but it's great recruiting, onboarding, ongoing training, ongoing coaching and development, you know, helping people win. At the end of the day, people want to win. They want to be developed. They want to be coached. They want to be led. And that's really culture. Culture's not, you know, Sometimes they go into companies and they think, look, we got a great culture. And they show me around, they have ping pong tables and beer taps and foosball tables. And I go, that's, I mean, and beanbag chairs. And I go, that's, that's all really nice. And Taco Tuesday and Waffle Wednesdays. That's all nice. Those are great things to have. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, when pe- people don't want another, their leader to be just another friend, they don't want them to be another nice neighbor. You know, I have a great neighbor. His name is Jim. When I drive down my driveway, I see Jim and I go, hey, Jim, how you doing? He goes, good, John, how you doing? Come on over for a beer later. So I got enough nice neighbors. What people want is they want to win. They want to, they want to be challenged. They want to grow. They want to be developed. They want to make money. They want to get promoted. They want to be somebody. And when you can help people do that, they're not, they're not really going to go anywhere. 
what happens is when it is transformed, and I think that's the right word, Simon, is most managers use their power of position, right? So when you use your power of position as a manager and you just mainly, and you see it a lot of times with first time managers, they're just managing by activity, not helping people accomplish anything. So they're saying like, how many emails did you do? How many cold calls? How many POCs? But they're not, they're just, people are just being managed by KPIs. They're not being managed by what they accomplish or what's going wrong in their ability to accomplish it. So now this power of position leads to a very transactional relationship between me as the leader and you as the rep. You do what I tell you to do in exchange for getting paid and not getting penalized. But that doesn't last long because you never get transformed, right? And then a great leader motivates through understanding your strengths, your weaknesses, your desires, your motivations, your insecurities, your goals, and all those types of things. And then they use that to drive you, to motivate you, to get to appeal to you, to get to persuade you, to get do things not only for the betterment of the company, not only for the betterment of the leader, but mainly for the betterment of you. And that's transforming people. It's not transactional, right? And that's the difference in the way in which a lot of people lead. Does that make sense? It does. And I think it's probably one of the most profound comments we've heard in relation to you know, these types of environments, you know, are pigeonholed or, you know, they, they can be seen as quite micromanaged environments, you know, run by heavy KPIs, et cetera. But that statement in itself just defies that whole misconception in my opinion. Um, right. and probably one of the most well articulated parts of why they're not a, a, a KPI driven environment. You know, they're just, individuals looking out for your interest to get to the best of where you want to get to, but also support you in getting there too. you know, understanding where your pitfalls are, understanding where, you know, you need support and, and training and developing and getting them to it. Um, yeah. So. Well, culture is pride. Like people want to be proud. They want to be proud of the company they work for, proud of the people that they work around, proud of their accomplishments. And the precursor to pride is winning. People have to win. And then the precursor to winning is you have to, you have to help people, you know, gain the knowledge and develop the skills that they need in order to, in order to win. And then to win in order to be proud and proud of everyone that's around them. You've, you guys probably seen the same movie. I mean, how many times have you, you seen that, you know, you, rec you finally recruit an A player into an organization with a bunch of C's and the A player comes out and says like, I don't belong here. This is not a place for me. Why? Because the A player is motivated by the other A player next to them and the other A player on the other side of them. That, those types of A players get motivated by that. They're not motivated. They're demotivated by yeah. the fact that there's a bunch, they're surrounded by a bunch of Cs. They know they're not going to learn. They know they're not going to grow. They know they're not going to get promoted. So they, they're out the door. And we see that a lot. We see that an awful lot. I'm sure um, you see it all the time. And, and again, you've got managers that go in there selling on features and benefits of an opportunity. It's exactly the same, right? It's not the benefits of the opportunity, it's the benefits of the career opportunity that you're creating for someone. And, and again, we, we try all the time to, to, to make sure that message you know, comes across. But 
know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really, I think as a, for our viewers, that, that particular piece will, will definitely resonate really well with them. Well, I suppose it would be good to kind of move forward to a little bit about blade logic. So was it, was it dev that picked up the phone and called you to go across to blade logic? How, how did, you know, after PTC, what happened to blade logic? How did you get involved there? Steve Walski, who was the CEO at uh, PTC, uh, was on the board. They needed to make a change at the CRO level. And I can't remember actually if it was Dave or Steve that, that uh, called me and said, hey, you know, I'd like, get, like to talk to you. But it happened quick. I just went in there, spoke to Dave and Steve and wound up taking the job. That was a time when actually every time you went to the VCs and they would tell you enterprise sales is dead. <laughs> and just like a bunch of lemmings, they thought everything is going to be sold over the web and no one's ever going to sell enterprise deals. And now all you've seen in, since that time is anybody that started over the web or started with inside sales all had to go out and get an enterprise sales force. All of them. So did anything evolve from PTC and Blade Logic? And sorry, first of all, how big a time gap was it? Was it straight from PTC to, to Blade Logic for you? Or was there something no, in between? That? No, there was stuff in the middle, yeah. Right, okay. Anything interesting you want to tell us about anything in the middle or? Yeah, nothing yeah. really. Okay. <laughs> Remember, you guys are command and control here. Uh, we were there, control. we were there. There might have been something that we missed. I'm at there. your mercy. I'm at your <laughs> mercy. So I suppose the question from here is that did anything and did your playbook evolve from PTC to Blade Logic? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. You get smarter. You learn from some of your mistakes. You refine things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how many times, I mean, you, you have to get smarter and smarter. You, 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 if you keep making the same mistakes, you got to change and you got to learn. And, um, some of it is pattern matching. Some of it is trying stuff that's new. There's a whole bunch of things that go into that, but eventually you refine it. And then sometimes, you know, people that are younger and, and, uh, a situation comes up and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. This is what we need to do. And you can explain here's why, which is maybe, maybe, that you've been whipped, you know, and you got 10 scars on your back from that same situation, they may not really believe it. And some, some people will believe it and take it to heart. And other, other people sometimes have to go touch the hot pan themselves. You know, like my son was young, he's like five, four or five years old and I was making some pancakes and I put them up on the stove and turned the pan on. I said, dad, is that pan hot? I said, that pan's hot. Yeah, can I touch that pan? I said, you can touch that pan, but if you touch that pan, you're going to burn your finger. So, Dad, if you think I touch that pan, I'll, I'll, my, my finger might burn. It might burn. It depends upon how fast you touch that pan. But, Dad, would you get mad if I touch that pan? I said, no, I won't get mad if you touch that pan. You touch the pan. Oh, Dad, my pan. <laughs> Some people want to touch the pan themselves, you know? So, you can't. what are you going to do about it? You can try to advise and it's no different than he was four years old or something, but it's the same thing in advising people that are 25, 30 years old. Some of them want to touch the hot pan themselves. Maybe that's just the way they learn. So Opsware obviously were a big competitor of you at the time. Um, we've obviously heard different accounts of how important Opsware were as a, as a kind of a benchmark competitor. 
How much was that in your mind in terms of having healthy competition? Was that something that was on your radar or were you just in your lane focusing on what you were doing? Well, you want, compet you want competitors. If you don't have competitors, you're probably in the wrong marketplace, right? It means the marketplace isn't, isn't big enough and not that this, the market blade logic wasn't really in a giant market, but you want competitors. Um, those guys went public. We were a private company. They went public as a company called LoudCloud, mainly on like Mark Andreessen's name, right? And then, yeah, they, were, they, they had a lot more feet on the street. They had a bigger name. They were public. So they were, they were a tough competitor. They also use a very similar playbook. Would you, would you say that in terms of obviously... You know, PTC influence in, in the other job. I would tell Cranny, even if he's right here, that I recruited better people than he did. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we need to get uh, John on, on here to, uh, to give his account, maybe. I, I don't know. We'll see. Go for it. Let's go for it. Like, I remember one time, like, when I first got in there, we didn't, they didn't know anything about how Opsware really sold against them. And I never really said this, but I said, okay, well, we got to figure out what Opsware, how Opsware sells. I want to figure it out now my first like or second month so what we, i told guys is let's go find some office space put up a sign we'll make some business cards and invite one of their sales guys in for a presentation and, and like let's go write the script and everything about what our company does and all that stuff so we had a a rep that didn't qualify come in from opsware tell us show us his presentation give us copies of it you know tell us what their strengths were, how they did against Blade Logic, all that stuff is perfect. List of their custom, you know, their top customers. So I'm not advocating that everybody does that, but I am advocating that you have to know who your competitor is and you have to know how do you win against that competitor. That's no different than the sports coach that knows they're going up against XYZ team next weekend and they have to know as much about that competitor as possible in order to win the game. Story. It's an incredible story. So I think really interesting point, and it's a point that has been um, spoken about a lot, which is the BMC acquisition. Obviously, at the beginning of the call, you mentioned obviously being at HP and then getting the, the, the taste of the starter world. You know, what, what was your feeling when you got a knock at the door and, you know, by BMC and it was now time to potentially be working for a larger organization through the acquisition? Yeah, so Blade Logic had already gone public, and then we got you know acquired by BMC. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm gonna make sure I say this the right way. BMC didn't have all. Oh, eight I'm gonna pause you there. You have to say this how you how you need to say it. BMC didn't hire A players into their sales force. Right. Like, there we go. Um, <laughs> and they didn't really. They had training, but the training was never on the on the fundamentals on the foundations of recruiting on the foundations of selling on the foundations of maniacal qualification of deals on forecasting accurately and and they had a lot of resources so it was pretty easy to reorganize those resources and start to change things i mean it was a ton of work ton of work but we changed the recruiting profile change the onboarding hiring, the ongoing hiring. We would test people, assess people. And then we started hiring really good people, changed out a lot of leaders. I think we got rid of 50% of the sales force. 
And then within the next couple of years, the stock had tripled, I think within two years, we took the productivity from like 1.1 million to 2.3 million. So if you just do that, that's almost like doubling the sales force that BMC had. So if you had the same reps and you double the productivity, it's almost like hiring, you know, doubling the number of reps. We've had the stories, John. Um, sales uh, kick up. Uh oh, yeah. <laughs> what happened? Um, you tell us what, what did happen. So, you know, I, I don't know, you know, whether it was the intention, but I think that very quickly you started to build a lot of credit with people that had been very stuck in their way for a very long time. And we know that at the sales kickoff, you were given, because you, you obviously were taken over and then you landed literally the week after at sales kickoff in Tennessee or wh wh wherever it was. In Tennessee, down in Nashville, yeah. And, um, you know, you obviously went up in stage and we've heard the account from others that you completely kind of enchanted the room. How, how, what's, your, what's your memories of those events? Yeah, I remember that they wanted me to do more of a bureaucratic presentation. You had to go up and you know, prepare your slides and, and, I, and then you had to run through your slides. And then I would say, like one time I'd say, like, I didn't, you, you don't wanna you know, buy any of that opsware chicken shit. And then some, everybody was like, oh my God, this is BMC, whatever you do, you can't say chicken shit. So then I thought to myself, I can't wait to get up there and say chicken shit. So, <laughs> so no, but then I, whatever, the, you know, we did in the, in the rehearsal, I just decided like, I'm just going to let it out. Like, I'm going to tell people the way that it is. Like, this is what Blade Logic has. This is why we're good. Here's everything about our sales force. And, you know, when I said chicken shit, I looked down at the, all the executives sitting in the front row and they were staring back at me that they wanted to kill me. But no, it was a fun time. And people in that room, even the BMCers, you either really enjoyed that or you didn't. And that told me a lot about, about you and whether or not you were somebody that I was going to want to keep around. Did you want to change? Were you ready for change? You know? Versus I suppose that gave you kind of a big mission there as well. Uh, part, part of the mission would have also been, I, I imagine a lot of, well, we know a lot of your guys weren't entirely pleased at the fact that they were now part of an organization. It's not what they kind of signed up to, but you know, you obviously had to galvanize them and realign them to, to, to whatever the mission, the new mission was. H how conscious were you of the fact that perhaps their, their heads had turned and you needed to kind of keep the band together at least for a short period of time to, to really help take this thing off. Very, I mean, any, you, you guys are recruiters, so you know that as soon as a big company overtakes a small company, all the recruiters and everybody's going after that, the reps in that company and the managers in that company. So I was well aware of it. So then the, and the way to keep people around is one, to try to give them a bunch of stock, two, to try to buy yourself some time. So you go get a number of wins quickly change out some of the leadership that's that's stale and as people start to win and they see the stock price start and go up now you now you got them but you have to buy you have to buy yourself some time it's really hard when you're changing things out when you're changing everything from recruiting profiles onboarding training regular training you know how we sell who the leaders are changing the leaders out recruiting new leaders recruiting new reps and trying to go win win deals
At the same time, while you still, so to your point, so you can keep some of these people around. Otherwise, they're going to take off. They're getting good offers. Yeah. How were also, you, yes, yeah. I think really important part here, and I think is how were you able to influence senior management, C-level execs, that we need to change pretty much everything about how this business runs. Because I hear it, we, we're obviously in the software space, we work for startups, get acquired by large organizations, but the ability to actually go in there and influence is always really tough. How were you able to, to influence and how were you able to, to get them to buy into your? Well, for me, I wasn't gonna change. So I, was, I, was, I knew what the playbook should be, so if you didn't like my playbook, you could ask me to leave, right? You have one, you have to have the confidence to know that what you're doing is right. And it's in the best interest of not just me, but the best interest of the people that came over from Blade Logic and the people at BMC that want to grow and want to be promoted and want to make money and want to be somebody. Yeah. The second thing is at the top, you know, they had these three groups like service, support service automation service something else and the the head of development and product wanted like even sales of all the products because they had like 30 products which made it really difficult and i in a in a executive meeting i said i'm not doing that and they the guy yelled at me across the table like did you hear john ain't gonna do that you're not gonna do that you're not gonna try to sell all the products and i said no I'm not going to try to sell all the products. I'm going to sell the products that we could sell. And we're going to try to maximize sales. So then I looked at the CFO and I said, would you rather that I sell all the products and we miss the number, the quarterly number? Or would you rather that I maximize sales and the productivity of the sales force? And he said, I'd rather that you maximize sales and the productivity of sales force. So that's what we did. So there's always in a bigger company, there's always bureaucrats that are going to get in your way and people that are not going to be happy that there's somebody new that's around and things and that things are going to change and they may not get what they want because for the development person or product person they may not be able to continue to fund those products if they're not selling but if they're not selling there's a reason that they're not selling right they should be defunded yeah it's obviously clear at that point that you know your reputation was strong enough to be able to to influence that decision right you know your reputation in previous must have you know it, it, it's just an indication right because as I said it happens all the time but yeah we don't see people coming and influencing at that level so credit where credit is you're just knowing like if you don't really here's my playbook and if you don't really like it that's okay i can go <laughs> Amazing. I'll go someplace else where someone appreciates it. So, so, so John, by this time, you're... it was good because Bob Beecham, who was the CEO, he really did appreciate it. And he really, I think behind this, he never told me until actually I left. <laughs> and Bob's a great guy, but I think he, he was doing a lot of support in the background that I'm unaware of. Because he's your champion, John. liked what I was doing. There was a reason he wanted me to, in that role. He liked what I was doing. He was seeing the results, and he wasn't going to get in the way of that, you know. And he was doing a lot of, a lot of things in the back room to to calm people down. 
Well, I think you've bought a science, right? All business owners, if we build a recruitment company or a business, which is a science and a mathematical equation for scale and success, you would. You had a proven tested model and a science and a mathematical equation that will yield success and right. get the business to where it got to. And any business owner is looking for that, right? So, yeah. So, so by this time, John, a lot of your um, managers were building really big reps of their own. They were like the Marine Corps. They were just strong by nature in terms of focus, had process, they knew how to manage. They were building a lot of reputation. It was, was it a surprise to you that they started to land the big job, not just, you know, other jobs, but big jobs, chief, you know, chief sales, chief revenue positions at that point? No, not really. I don't, I never really thought of it, but it didn't really, never surprised me. I think a lot of those guys are super talented and they have talents I don't have and probably never will have. A lot of those guys are really, really good and they, and, and it's proven they're doing a great job. Yeah. Kind of post BMC, what, what is it that you are, you're obviously doing a lot of advisory board, board work. What, what is it that you kind of spend most of your time doing now, you know, since, since you left BMC? Well, when I left BMC, I thought, you know, I'll just take a little break and go back in. And then a lot of people who, you know, some of the guys that you spoke about, a lot of them started calling me and say, hey, John, like I'm a first time CRO. My CEO's a first time, you know, tech CEO. We're smart enough to know we're going to make mistakes. And you've done this, you know, you've been in like five different startups. So, and they've been successful. So why don't you come in and help advise us and help us? So then I started doing that. And then what happened was some of the tech CEOs started to realize I had a different opinion on things and a different viewpoint on their company than the VCs. So then, you know, if you think about it, you have the tech CEO sitting on this side of the table in a startup, and then you have the VCs and the VCs are, they're going to probably get their money back out of the deal anyway. And they, they have one way in which they want to manage the company, but they don't necessarily always have the best interests of, the company and the CEO in mind. And then I think that some of the CEOs started to say, hey, this guy is really lending value and I want to get him on the board. So then it's a matter of making sure you're advising for the right companies and you're on the right boards that where the company's going to go somewhere. Otherwise you're doing a lot of charity work, right? You get equity, but you don't really, you don't get paid. So now I'm on the board of, you know, Snowflake, which is, growing like a weed and mongoose. Yeah. Like the own soon. I can't really say, but <laughs> it's in the news. So. Don't worry. It's all over the news. <laughs> July. And we're all waiting to invest. <laughs> and then um, you know, Cyber Reason in Boston. And then also out in the West, a company called Lacework, where Andy Byron is a person yep. that's worked with me a couple times. A company called Sigma Computing. Think of it as like a a tableau that sits on the top of snowflake. Right. Wow. Yeah. So there, you know, in some of those companies, you know, in the beginning stages of the company, you, you work with them a lot. You know, you might talk to them every day or a number of times a week. And then as the company starts to scale, you know, you may not talk to them that much. I mean, they're, they're on their way. Take a company like snowflake that has Frank Slootman, who's been the CEO at 
data domain, the CEO of ServiceNow, and now he's the CEO of Snowflake. I mean, he doesn't need my help, right? So you're just there, you know, if they need advice or if they want to bounce something off of you, you're not really doing as much work as you did in the early days. It's all so interesting, but I, I can't help but think, John, where do you find time for John? <laughs> you know, what sacrifices have you had to make in your life to, to get to this, right? Because none of this is, you know, I put a couple of hours in here or there. It's, it's full on, you know, you're investing a hell of a lot of time into this. Where does John find time for John? <laughs> yeah, I find a little what bit of time. You? I get up early in the morning, you know, get up at 4.35 and try to go on a bike ride or work out. Same thing at night. And then during the day, I just try to work. Like even right now, I'm trying to write a book too. So that's going to, that takes a lot of time. Amazing. What's the topic of the book? Are you allowed to discuss? Be a lot of stuff that we talked about. Sales process, qualification methodology, forecasting accuracy, stuff like that, you know? Right. It's so freaking hard. So hard. Yeah. So do you have anything to do with John Kaplan and force management or? John Kaplan, Grant Wilson, the founders of force management used to work for me at PTC. Cool. Yeah, so I'm really yeah. good friends with them and, you know, outside of, you know, work. Yeah. And those guys are doing a fantastic job for a lot of companies. Their, yeah. their sales messaging program is, is top tier. No one's, no one's better at it than, Kaplan and Wilson. Those two yeah. guys are just amazing. Yeah. We've heard and lots John of Kaplan. I don't know if you ever met John Kaplan. You should meet him. He's to me, he's like the greatest sales presenter in the world. I don't know anybody else that's better than John Kaplan. And now when he worked for me, he was, he was an okay uh, presenter, but in the time since, because he's done so many presentations, John's just phenomenal. Yeah. He can captivate a crowd, captivate them. Yeah. I look yeah. at a lot of, I, I follow a lot, I follow him on, on LinkedIn and other social media platforms and the stuff and the content he writes is just so on point, but he just makes yeah. it so easy to understand it as well. Um, right. That's the thing is you got to simplify things. Too many people make stuff so complex and, and so many words that you can't really understand what they're, what they're really trying to tell you. Hmm. Well, there was a Mark Twain saying, he said, he wrote a letter to somebody and he said, I would have wrote a shorter letter, but it would have taken, it would have taken too much time. <laughs> uh, what, what kind of general advice would you give to our listeners? Um, you know, sale, aspiring sales execs that are trying to find their way early in their career. What's the best piece of advice that John McMahon can give those individuals right now today? Be a student of the game. You know, even today, I still find little things that somebody says or does. And I think, oh, that's really good. I got to I got to stick that in my backpack, too. So you got to be a, you got to decide that you're going to be a student of the game like it is a game. And you got to be see if you can be the best student of that game. So if you're young and you're aspiring to do something, go find a mentor, go work for somebody that's going to train you, coach you, develop you. And if you don't have that, it doesn't matter how much money you're making, go someplace else because the money will follow. Too many people sacrifice the money in the early stages of their career. And then later on, they find out, well, I really don't know anything and people are passing me by. And the reason they're passing you by is you never, you, you always went after the money and you might've gone after the position, but you didn't go after the opportunity. You didn't go after the learning environment. You gotta be a student of the game and eventually you'll bypass a lot of people. 
Yeah. So final question, um, John, for today. Does the unit hey, we're gonna do this again? This has been almost two hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It's the last one and then we're gonna wrap up. So does the hunter make the unicorn? I don't know what that means. What is a hunter? So the hunter being a salesperson, the unicorn being the billion-dollar uh, companies. Do you think it's possible for the billion-dollar companies to exist if you don't have the right salespeople or the right people to make it happen? No, no. I mean, it happens. There's a lot of companies that get to a billion dollars in market cap these days because their growth rate is pretty high and the technology is really good. But then, and I've even been part of a couple of those and, but then they kind of run out of gas because they never put the right things in place. They didn't recruit the right people. They didn't do all the things that we've talked about in this, in this session. And then it eventually catches up with them. And the problem there is that, and you've seen this movie is those same companies that came out, had a good technology and it took off, but they didn't put the right things in place. Next thing you know, they started to attrit a whole bunch of sales reps. And sales rep, good sales reps are in hot demand. So then they lost a lot of reps. Now they get a bad reputation in the street. And now they're trying to recruit good people. Really, really tough thing to do. Because people think, think it's risky. So they go someplace else. But to get to a billion these days, not really that hard. I think that's a good place to kind of end and reflect here, John. So if I was to kind of summarize what we've heard today, I think... Before we meet John, we obviously see the incredible success that this group of 33 have achieved in their career. You know, we, we see some of the high level numbers, um, 22 billion in VC funding, eight decagorns, 26 unicorns, some of the fastest, most exciting, fastest growing, most exciting companies in, in, in technology around the world. Um, and, you know, that's just the 33 and, and beyond that, probably the hundreds more that you've influenced. But it's not until you actually meet you that you kind of realize where the source of this power is and actually your background, the things that you were exposed to, the, your mindset of having to really focus your time on the things that are important and to almost be able to get rid of the things that aren't important and then use that mindset to create a process which is simple that people can really buy into, give people a purpose, teach them how to recruit, teach them how to own a vision, a strategy, and most importantly, create a perpetual environment where they're not, they're not restricted by their manager, but actually they can outgrow and outsmart and continue to develop their own legacy. It's once you actually piece that all together that you can really start to understand the power of this story. So, John, I just want to kind of take this, uh, this opportunity to, to really thank you for your time. Um, it's been so, so inspirational, so eye-opening, and, you know, we really are humbled to, uh, to have, you with you, with, have you with us as a guest today. Great, Simon. Great, Ali. Thanks for taking the time. It was nice no, talking. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much, John. It's been absolutely inspirational. Thank you.